Dear Lord, we um, thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your church. Um, We are so blessed to be here, um, to experience the love and the grace um, from the community and the family that is your church. We thank you for the wisdom um, and the insight that your word gives us to live our lives more wisely um, and pleasing to you. Um, Be with us this morning. um, Teach us um, and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so currently we are in Daniel, and today we'll be in Daniel 2. And Lawrence has kind of been taking over the Daniel series while George is back into uh, the West Side preaching through Revelations. And last week, Lawrence gave us an intro- a nice introduction to Daniel. Um, so just to bring up everyone to speed, Daniel is kind of classified as a wisdom book. Um, it's been seen kind of as a pro- prof- prophetic book in the West, but really traditionally um, it's a wisdom book. So it's um, fits in between Proverbs and with Ecclesiastes and Psalms. And really through Daniel, um, what we're seeing is a life of wisdom through Daniel and um, what that looks like. And additionally, it's written at a time when Israel's in exile. So um, through their sin, through their rebellion against God, they were taken into exile in Babylon. Um, and this is a story about Daniel and his three friends who are in exile, and they're Israelites living in a foreign culture. Additionally, it's a really easy book to kind of uh, outline because in the first six chapters, we have six um, independent but connected stories. And in the second half of the book, we have six, again, independent but connected visions. And today we're going to be in Daniel 2, which is the second of these stories. Um, It's probably pretty familiar if you grew up in a church. It's the traditional story of Nebuchadnezzar having a dream, um, needing it interpreted, much like the interpretation for Pharaoh with Joseph um, and about the statue. So if you have, there's some Bibles in the aisles. Um, Additionally, most of us probably have an app to some extent. Otherwise, we have it on the frontier. So Daniel 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dreams and its interpretations, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretations, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servant the dream, and we will show its interpretations. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. The word is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream, there is one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretations. 
The, children, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the kings ask is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this king, because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the king's the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show him the interpretation to the king. So it's kind of a pretty fast start to this story. We immediately kind of have to ask, who is in the story? So the major characters are clearly King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon. And as Lawrence kind of touched on last week, at this time, he's the most powerful man on the earth. Uh, the Babylonian kingdom is the greatest kingdom of its time. And Nebuchadnezzar is, he seems to be worried. He's troubled, says that he's sleepless. Um, kind of have to ask, why is Nebuchadnezzar troubled and sleepless? And that kind of seems to be connected um, to the next kind of characters in the story. They're his closest advisors. The text specifically says that they are magicians, enchanters, uh, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Also, um, some interpretations call it the the astrologers. Additionally, we have Ariok, who is the captain of the guard. So he'd be the the guard, like the the head of the, the military within the court. And lastly, we have Daniel, who is the exile um, that we have seen in, in the first chapter. He is a young but bright um, Judean who is in exile. And so really what we see here is we have King Nebuchadnezzar, and he makes an impossible demand upon his advisors, the magicians, the sorcerers. Not only does he want um, his dream interpreted, which was very common in the Babylonian culture, but he also wants the dream to be completely revealed to him. And he gives a little hint as to why. He seems to be disturbed and, um, by his advisors. They're, he says something along the lines of that they're corrupt and that they're just trying to buy time. So he's, he's skeptical of their abilities. And kind of the, the fascinating point of this whole story is that we are seeing kind of a clash of the Babylonian culture and immediately Daniel's culture, right? So the Babylonians, um, their advisors, um, we see a highly mystical element in their society. They were seeking the stars. They were seeking all forms of sorcery to figure out what the future is so then they would know um, how to plant their crops, how to make the best investments, all these type of things. Um, doesn't seem to be completely foreign to what we do today. And the penalty seems to be stiff here. Nebuchadnezzar not only has this great demand upon his advisors, um, but that if they don't follow through, they will receive death and their households will be destroyed. It seems like a pretty stiff penalty for 
an impossible task. And so how do we interpret Daniel within this Babylonian culture? Because to do sorcery or to do magic or to do mystical was against the Israelite code. It was against the law. But we see Daniel here. He is one of the king's men. He's one of the advisors. He is grouped with the magicians. Um, and he has to live and work within a culture that is foreign to his own culture. And is probably kind of on that... Um, ethical and moral um, gray area, or even evil completely. And additionally, what we see is um, significant injustice, really. We have a king who is declaring an impossible task that if his people don't follow through, they will receive death. And the really the most striking verse that I see here, and that we will see later in this chapter, um, is there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling in is not with flesh. So immediately we see these magicians who claim that no man can do this. They are fully aware that they are completely powerless to be able to know the king's dream and that only the gods would be able to do this. So we're going on to verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom belong with wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So we see Daniel, he is responding to the just complete uncertainty and turmoil that is in um, Babylon and in his life at this moment. Daniel's living in the midst of political turmoil. The king is revolting against his own closest advisors. The magicians and the sorcerers of his day would be the, you know, like the, the presidential cabinet, right? Um, they're the most trusted men, and suddenly the king is revolting against them. He is in the midst of intense work pressure, right? This is his job, is to be amongst these men, to be the advisors to the king. But instead of, if we don't do a great job, we might um, not get a raise or whatever. Um, Daniel's facing death if he isn't able to interpret this dream. He's also in the midst of a dark culture. The Babylonians um, do not know the one true God. It is a foreign culture, both religiously um, and everything else, right? They, their whole um, understanding of how the world works was different than the Israelites. And in the midst of all of this uncertainty and in the midst of um, this intense pressure upon Daniel, what do we see? Immediately we see Daniel go back 
to be with his three friends, his companions, and immediately he seeks God. He prays. He seeks the mercy of the Lord. And we will see this throughout Daniel. Daniel's response in the time of all pressure, whether or not it's in the lion's den, it's in this, um, or whatnot, he always is praying. He's always seeking God in the midst of all the turmoil that is going on in his life. And what do we, what do we notice about Daniel's prayer? What we really see is that Daniel truly believes that God is the source of all wisdom and might, and that he is in control of all things. As he prays, he removes kings and he sets up kings. If Daniel truly believes this, um, then this seems to be an adequate response to the death sentence by the king. If God alone sets up and appoints kings, then he alone can be in control of the situation. He believes that God is the holder of all mysteries. The Babylonians, the magicians, clearly said that no man can interpret this, but Daniel believes that God is the one who can interpret this. He says, God knows what is in the darkness and that the light dwells with him. Daniel says that God is the revealer of all things. Oops. There you go. All right, Daniel 24. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for you, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And so immediately we see Daniel go to Arioch to plead for the lives of the magicians, um, the wise men of Babylon. And we see Daniel, he's pleading for their lives and obviously his own. And he's doing this not for his own glory, but so that he can glorify God to Neb King Nebuchadnezzar. It's really revealing Daniel's motives. He does not go to King Nebuchadnezzar to say, how great he is, but to actually reiterate in a really shocking um, instance of parallelism between the wise men of Babylon and Daniel. We see them both say that no man can reveal this, that there is no one who can do it. The Babylonians instead say that there, it must be amongst the gods who are not within the, basically this earth. Instead, um, Daniel claims that it is the one true God, the one God who cares about the people of this earth, 
who can reveal all these things. And Daniel is bold enough to go before the most powerful man on earth, this king who seems to be not at ease, who is a little bit volatile right now. But Daniel has the boldness to go before and to go before um, in regards to all of the, the wise men because he alone has the faith that God's revelation is true. And again, we see um, this beautiful um, parallelism between Daniel and the wise men. He says that no man can know the dream and reveal it to the king. Only God could do this. And in, unlike the magicians who seem to be doing their work for their own glory, Daniel is doing the work simply for the glory of God. And on to the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image of its feet of iron and clay, and broke them into pieces. Then the iron and clay and bronze and silver and the gold altogether were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory and into whose hands he is given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold, and another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule all over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." And in the days of those kings, the, king, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So we, we see this dream where we have this great statue of which the head is gold and of lesser materials going down. And what is really clear um, from the interpretation that the text gives us is that the gold head is Nebuchadnezzar and God has appointed him. He has given him the power and the glory and the might to rule over the entire earth. It is by God's will and by God's 
um, sovereignty that Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon and has the power and the might that he does. And what we see in this um, dream is that there will be succeeding kingdoms. Each will be of lesser ability than Babylon and of King Nebuchadnezzar's rule. The text doesn't say which kingdom these will be. And there's different interpretations, but really what I think it's trying to make clear to us is that there will always be um, a change in kingdoms seen throughout this earth. There will always be the new great empire, the new great kingdom that will succeed and one will crumble and one will fall, followed by the next kingdom. And that this is kind of part of um, this world and God is overseeing all of it. And God ultimately, at the end though, there will be an end to this succession of kingdoms and empires who rule over this world because ultimately there will be one kingdom, God's kingdom, that will fill the entire earth and will crush the statue as we see. There's a rock that comes that is not man-made, that is made of God, that will destroy the statue and will fill the entire earth as a mountain. And Nebuchadnezzar responds to this dream the interpretation, saying, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Daniel of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So at the end of this whole um, epic here, we have Nebuchadnezzar, the great, powerful, pagan king, declaring the greatness of the Hebrew god, Yahweh. He's declaring the greatness that only God can reveal the mysteries. It's a bit of an ironic um, statement, however, because we'll learn in the next few chapters that Nebuchadnezzar um, states this, but he doesn't actually really believe this. He creates a statue of himself for all of Babylon to to worship. Um, But at the end, what we see is the whole kind of thrust of this chapter, that God is the revealer of mysteries, that God is in control, that God is um, above all things. And in the end, Daniel is vindicated. We see him um, promoted to basically second in command in Babylon, just like Joseph was promoted to second in command um, in Egypt. (laughs) And so, really looking at this text, the question that I had was, um, is this culturally relevant? We have this story um, that's really probably somewhere between 22 to 2,500 years old, right? It's in a completely foreign culture. Um, doesn't seem to have a lot of application to the 21st century. But really, underneath it all, the beauty of it being in um, this story form is that we ourselves can see and um, relate with the characters, right? In the midst of of the story, we see both Daniel and also Nebuchadnezzar, but especially Daniel, we see an immense amount of uncertainty around his life. Um, His whole life has been uh, one 
kind of mess, essentially. He was born in Israel, was taken from his home, taken from his parents, taken from everything that he knew, and put in a foreign culture to serve a foreign king that was ruled by um, a completely foreign religion. There's immense uncertainty in his job. He suddenly has a death warrant around him. There's immense uncertainty um, just about his whole life. And I think that's kind of where we live. We all have a fear of the uncertainty in our life. How will my job go in the future? Will there be my job in the future? Will it be eliminated through technology or whatever? Will I um, be able to retire? Will I... um, How will the markets go? Will there be another recession in the future? What will happen with um, the political sphere? Where will the elections go in the future? And even more on the... There's there's always uncertainty in our lives. And as humans, I think what happens is we all have a deep longing for the great mysteries of life. What will happen in the future? And like the Babylonians, we all... Um, seek those mysteries. We want to know how will our lives go. Will there be honor and glory at the end of the day? Will our work be in vain? Will our lives um, be meaningful? We all have these questions that are really reflected in the text. And ultimately, will we live our lives correctly? Will we live with wisdom like Daniel did? Because clearly we see Daniel as an immense figure of wisdom. He is able to tackle the hardest problems of life with wise and t- wisdom intact. And ultimately, I think we all would love to live our lives with that kind of wisdom and ability. And so in Daniel, in Daniel we see um, a man, a literary figure that really is kind of to this uh, mythical proportions, right? There's, we don't see any flaws in Daniel. And really, I think what the text is pointing us to is that Daniel was the true Israelite that God wanted the Israelites to be. He prays diligently. He walks in righteousness. He walks in wisdom. And in Daniel, we see really a truly wise man. We see that but ultimately, his wisdom, as he himself declares, is not coming from himself. It's coming from his relationship with God. It comes from prayer and direct rev- revelation from God. And ultimately, um, we see that Daniel does not go any further in claiming that he is the source of wisdom. And thankfully, we have what we see in Daniel, we see in Jesus himself even more. Because Jesus, as we see in John, um, in the beginning, he was the Word, and um, the Word was with God, right? So Jesus was that manifestation of wisdom that we see in Daniel. He was the better Daniel in this, because he was in complete relationship with God. His wisdom came from prayer. It came from knowing God. Daniel navigated the darkness of his culture, and the evil of his culture with wisdom. And like that, Jesus did. Jesus le- lived in a very similar era where there was, uh, he was living um, amongst the Roman oppression, amongst um, the evil of Herod. And ultimately, 
Daniel trusts that God is in control. In the face of death, Daniel prays. And in the face of death, Jesus prayed. But unlike Daniel, when Jesus prayed, he was abandoned by his friends at Gethsemane. Daniel prayed with his friends. And unlike um, Daniel, Jesus' prayer was not really answered. He prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even though Jesus knows that his death is imminent, he's still praying, and he's trusting that God is the true sustainer of all things. And at the end of it all, we see a Christ, we see a Messiah, who still trusts in God um, in the face of his death, but ultimately was vindicated through that faith. And like Daniel, um, we see as Jesus, he went before Pilate, he went before um, the rulers of his day, offering himself um, for, the, for the people of this world. Daniel, offer, he went before and pled for the lives of the wise men. And ultimately, the good news of Jesus and the good news of God, unlike what the Chaldeans and the magicians and enchanters said, that there is a God who has made his dwelling amongst us and who has made his dwelling in flesh. The Chaldeans, the magicians, enchanters said, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And ultimately, this is what allows us to know the wisdom of God, is Christ's dwelling amongst us. He has entered into the flesh for us. And so really, if we're trying to apply this to our lives, um, we need to look at it and say, yes, we live in uncertain times. Yes, there is a lot of um, interesting things going on, different things, the but ultimately, there have been, this has been happening for generations and generations. And that's what the statue is to remind us of, that there will be um, different kingdoms that will come and go. But ultimately, um, the certainty that we have is that God's kingdom will hold forever. And despite the craziness of this world, the difficulties that we work in, the culture that we live in, God is ultimately in control and the sovereign over all of it. And so the question that I think some of us can have is, looking at Daniel, can we be like Daniel? Or should we be like Daniel is maybe even the better question. And I think I would propose that we really can't be like Daniel. Daniel is this um, figure who doesn't seem to really... um, have a flaw because he's a picture of what is to come in Christ. But since we can't be like Daniel, we must have a proxy who can, and that's who Jesus was. He was the true Daniel, the better Daniel, the man who was not only able to live a wise life, but was able to be the wise life. He was able to reveal God's wisdom in himself. And I think this is what Paul is really getting at in his letters. Um, He says, it is only through, 
as Paul says in Ephesians, we are to put off the old self and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new and to be imitators of God. And so instead of trying to be like Daniel or to be, um, to be Daniel, we ultimately, through the renewal of our minds, through the spirit, we are able to put off, um, to actually put on the wisdom of Christ, to be one as, he, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we have the mind of Christ through the wisdom of Christ. And as uncertain as life seems, once again, we have that certainty that Christ was the rock who crushed the statue. And that's the whole message of the Gospels that Jesus con- continues to reiterate over and over again, is to repent that the kingdom of God is at hand. For in when Jesus became in flesh was the, become, was the beginning of his kingdom. And like Daniel, we are still in exile, as George has been uh, preaching through Revelations. But the great paradox of the New Testament is that Christ has set up his everlasting kingdom um, and that we live in exile, but yet in his kingdom. And so the questions that I kind of had... Um, I was pondering throughout this week was if God was truly in control and if his kingdom was actually here and if the source of God's wisdom was actually fully available to us in Christ, how would that change my life? Would that actually change the way that I acted or thought? And the things that I kind of came up with, I think the, one of the things I would be, that would be different would be less anxious about what is happening in this world. Um, when the news comes on with um, all the terrible things that are happening, um, war in Syria, deportations, whatever it is, um, that I would be able to live truly knowing that I'm a citizen of God's kingdom, that what is happening here, although it is bad and evil, that Christ himself has reconciled all things and that he is in control. And that we would be able to live in this culture as an exile peacefully. I think a lot of us, at least me in my heart, um, knowing that there is evil in this world and knowing that there is uncertainty, I want to change the culture that I live in. I want to be able to make my own culture, make, um, make good what is happening in this world. But I think ultimately we can do as Paul calls us all to in the New Testament, to live our lives peacefully um, and quiet lives. Because we know that Christ himself um, has control over all of these things and that we can live kind of this paradoxical life as an exile, but yet as a citizen in God's kingdom. And I think the other thing that I was really reflecting on was if we were to apply this to our work, I would be a lot less concerned with the office politics, what's going on at work, um, less concerned about the money and status that comes from work, less concerned about the glory that can come from work. And overall, I think I would be a lot less concerned about the future of my job, of my work, because if God really does provide for all of us. Like Christ says on, on the Sermon on the Mount that he 
if the sparrow, um, blanking on the verse now, but that Jesus alone provides for all things, that he, um, that whatever happens um, that is completely out of my control, that Christ has reconciled all that and that he has allowed for me to live with wisdom. And if I don't, then ultimately um, he is still in control and that takes a lot of the pressure off. And so overall, the overarching kind of message is that as Daniel prayed, that God is in full control, that he is mighty and good, and that um, his kingdom will sustain forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your text. We thank you for um, the wisdom that comes from it. Um, we pray that we would live as if your kingdom is truly here. Um, we thank you for all things. We praise you for your, um, your great will and your sovereign word. In Jesus' name, amen.